Good morning to you. If you are kindergarten through fifth grade, you are welcome to make an exit. If you are new to us and mom and dad or grandma and grandpa have not registered you, if they could just slip out to the back, uh, we'll be happy to register your child and they are welcome to be picked up later in the service. All right. Today we begin a new sermon series. We have been going through the post-exilic prophets. We started in Ezra, and Ezra and Nehemiah are two scrolls in the Hebrew Bible. And in between Ezra and Nehemiah chronologically happens the events of Esther. And so we've done Ezra, we've done Esther, and we come to Nehemiah. I don't know how many of you follow baseball, but Yankees manager Casey Stengel used to say the key to being a good manager is keeping the people who hate me away from the people who are still undecided. <laughs> Dave Barry opined, when, when trouble arises and things look bad, there is always one individual who perceives a solution and is willing to take command. Very often that person is crazy. Most people today admit we have a woeful deficit of good leaders in our society. Godly leaders are even in shorter supply still. And so today, as we begin our tour of the book of Nehemiah, we meet one of the Bible's great leaders. Nehemiah is a great leader of God's people. And so I want to encourage you, instead of in integrating the, the, the latest managerial fad from today's gurus, who will become tomorrow's has-beens, let's go to the fount of all wisdom and see what leadership lessons we can learn from Nehemiah's notebook. If you turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Nehemiah, and if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you're welcome to use ours. In our Bibles, it's page 503. Page 503 of the Blue Pew Bibles will take you to Nehemiah chapter 1. As you turn to the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as we embark upon a new sermon series, as we move through another passage of Your Word that was written to be a lamp unto our feet. Lord, would You please help us to pull leadership lessons from Nehemiah's notebook. Lord, You used this man to accomplish great feats in a relatively short window of time. Would you please give us the wisdom so we would know in our generation how we can walk worthily and accomplish much. You did all this despite great opposition. Strident, reinforced opposition. But Lord, you accomplished it. And so I pray that you would help us to be a church that applies the wisdom of Scripture, that we would have the work of our hands established, and that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servants as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in Nehemiah 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chisel, which is the 20th year, or excuse me, in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. So Nehemiah's back in Persia. It's the 20th year of the king's reign. He's in Susa, the citadel, one of the multiple palaces that the Persian emperor has. That Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. 
And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant that is there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So so Nehemiah has this chance encounter. He's having tea with his brother and here comes these other people. He inquires about the state of affairs back in the Holy Land and he finds that the city is utterly undefended and the people of God are in great peril. Verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes, and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant mercy in this sight of man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. That's his position. We'll talk more about that for a second. Carry on to chapter 2. We move to the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was before the king, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Why? Because he's the cupbearer. That's what he does. Now, I had not been sad in his presence because that's never what the cupbearer does. He has to always be jolly. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing that you are not sick. The king's no dummy. He's never seen Nehemiah this way. This, this can be nothing but sadness of the heart. Now, the king knows his cupbearer well. And I was very much afraid. Because you see, a cupbearer was never supposed to show anything other than happiness before the king. The presence of the king was supposed to bring his servant joy. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever! Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed, little bullet prayer, to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me. And when I had given him a time, 
And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and the walls of the city and the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me all that what was asked for the good hand of God was upon me. All right? So, let's review. Who is Nehemiah? Who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a Jew. He's a Jew whose family chose to remain in Persia when God released all the Jews who would be willing to return back to the Holy Land way back under Cyrus. And Nehemiah's family said, we will not go. God has released us, but we will not go. We'd rather stay here. And and in our passage... This takes place about 13 years after the second return. Remember, there's a a return of 50,000 Jews under Cyrus. Then there's a second return under Ezra. And now we're about 13 years after that return. And so Nehemiah himself, not only did his family not choose to return when God gave them release many years ago, but he himself personally, 13 years ago, turned down an offer again by God to go back to the Holy Land. Why would Nehemiah reject that opportunity? He seems like a man after God's own heart. Well, uh, Nehemiah in Persia holds a very high position. In Nehemiah 1.11, the Bible says that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Now, you need to understand that an ancient cupbearer was much more than a modern butler. Okay, uh, An ancient cupbearer had a position of great responsibility within the kingdom. Uh, To be a cupbearer meant that you were a member of the official royal court, and you selected the king's wine, whatever you thought would make him happy that night, and you tasted it personally to prevent his poisoning. Your job was to prevent regicide. You were the last line of defense on the lips of the king himself. Now, if you survey extra-biblical literature and you begin to summarize what traits would be true of the average cupbearer in this era, you're going to see several things emerge. Extra-biblical literature tells us to be a cupbearer meant that you must be exceptionally well-trained in court decorum and etiquette. You knew what was to happen and when, and and you were able to keep all that exactly correct. Literature tells us he'd have been handsome because, you know, ugly Bob doesn't get to stand next to the king because it doesn't give the king glory when you come in and go, look at my palace, don't look at Igor who's serving me wine. So he would have been handsome. Uh, He would have always been a convivial companion to the king. If the king was sad, the cupbearer was cheery. If the king was worried, the cupbearer was positive. Um, He was always able to lend an ear. When the king needed to talk, the cupbearer was a safe person to talk to. He was always eager to give good cheer and he would also be a man who would give good counsel because the king's very life was held on his lips, right? And above all, Nehemiah, as the cupbearer, would have the complete confidence of the king. And so, understand that Nehemiah is is a privileged and powerful person who is serving a potentate in Persia whose prominence at that time extended all the way from modern India to modern Ethiopia. A vast empire. And he's effectively sort of the number two guy. So, think about Nehemiah's life for a second. Nehemiah has the rigors of empire to ponder. I've got to 
help keep the king keep this whole thing together. He's got the emotional disposition of the king to daily assuage. Oh, he's unhappy. Oh, he's unsettled. Oh, he's depressed. I've got to assist to, to, to take the bicycle pump and inflate the king back up. He has all the perks of his high position. When he's not on duty, he's part of the royal court. He gets good stuff. He has access to good stuff. He has all these things. He has all this that you would think would be on his heart. But the Bible tells us Nehemiah's heart is elsewhere. Even as his hands are holding the king's cup, his mind is on a greater king whose earthly outpost lay some 850 miles away in Jerusalem. And that brings us to our first point today. Our first point today is this. Good leaders... And it's unassailably true that Nehemiah is one of the great leaders in the Bible. Good leaders are inquirers. Good leaders are inquirers. Look again at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. The Bible says, Now it happened in the month of Chisel that on the twentieth year, as I was in Susa the citadel. Let's give some context here. Susa is the very same city that 100 years earlier, the prophet Daniel had his famous vision about the Messiah being cut off. Do you remember that? One of the most uh, implicit references of eschatology in all of the Old Testament. 100 years ago in this very city, Daniel had his fateful prophecy. And today, in our text, Daniel has a fate, or, uh, Nehemiah has a fateful visit in this same city. The Bible says, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. One of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. Now, that's such a little thing, isn't it? A, a visit from your brother. But there were others the Scripture says. And it's through the others that, that Nehemiah is about to discover his God-given purpose and mission. Friends, we never know when an ordinary day is about to become an extraordinary day in the Kingdom of God. Nehemiah was just going about his daily duties diligently serving the king. And he rested to have a cup of tea with his brother who brought some others. And the others in the room changed the trajectory of Nehemiah's life and massively advanced the work of God. Did you know it was just an ordinary day in Exodus 3 when Moses went out to care for some sheep? But on that day, God called him to service and he became a great prophet. Did you know it was an ordinary day in 1 Samuel 6 when David was summoned home from tending his family's flock and God called him into service and anointed him to be king? It was an ordinary day in Luke chapter 5 when, when Peter and James and John were mending their nets. And that is the day that Jesus Christ called them to be fishers of men. We never know what God has in store even in a commonplace conversation. And so we must constantly keep our hearts open to the providential leading of God. Amen? Nehemiah is a good leader. And so he inquires because good leaders inquire. Look at verse 2. Nehemiah has these others who are from Jerusalem and he asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. 
What does Nehemiah discover once he inquires? He discovers that the people of God are a remnant. He discovers that they live in reproach. He discovers that the city walls lie in ruin. And Nehemiah is shocked to learn these truths. Listen again to verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 1 Chronicles 12.32 says this, the men of Issachar understood their times and they knew what Israel should do. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And Ecclesiastes 7.25 says, I turned my heart to know, to search out, to seek wisdom, and the scheme of things. What is really going on? They're inquiring to find out, what am I supposed to do in this situation? And it begs the question, are we inquisitive to the work of God in this world around us? Do we seek out and do we read up on reports from our missionaries so we can pray fervently and specifically and effectively? Or is our missionary prayer reduced to bless the missionaries? Really specific, really kingdom impacting, isn't it? Do we keep up with our own prayer guide here at Calvary so we can intercede in a way that, 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 that is strategic and timely and effective? Some people prefer not to know what's going on because information might bring obligation. But good leaders inquire. Proverbs 18.15 says this, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, the ears of the wise seek it out. So are you an inquirer? Are you seeking to know so you can grow? Or are you content to be blissfully ignorant on matters pertaining to the kingdom of God? Because good leaders are inquirers. Equally, number two, good leaders are passionate. They're passionate about the Lord's work. Good leaders are passionate about the Lord's work. They're not ho-hum, it's a job, I'm going to do whatever, this is what's assigned to me, this is what's expected. They're passionate about the things of God. They have a burning, yearning to see the kingdom of God advance. Good leaders are passionate about the Lord's work. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words about the wreck and ruin of the remnant, what does he do? He sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. And I continued fasting and praying. Nehemiah doesn't know how to fix this. He, he's broken by this, and he goes to the God of heaven, and he fasts, and he prays, and he intercedes, and he asks, and he looks for God to intervene. What would God see fit for me to do? i got to ask you a question. When you hear of gospel struggles, do you stop and weep? Are we deeply moved when the kingdom of God seems stuck in the mud in a certain area? Or are we so preoccupied by our personal pursuits that our vacations and our hobbies and our careers leave us functionally unconcerned regarding the advancement of Christ and His kingdom? It's very easy to get caught up in the lesser and forget the greater. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to come through those doors and walk down the center aisle, right now this morning, and He were to stop at your pew, and He would look at you with the blazing intensity of the perfection of His Shekinah glory, and He were to ask this question of you, are you seeking first My kingdom and My righteousness? How would you answer Jesus 
if we think we might waver, if we would prefer to defer that answer, then perhaps we need to start praying that the Lord would give us His passion for His work so that our favorite distraction becomes a distant second to Christ and His kingdom. Amen? We need a a radical reorientation of our perspective back to the things of God. Maybe we need to memorize Proverbs 12.11. Proverbs 12.11 says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How often should we be lacking in zeal? How often should we have an obvious, real, contagious spiritual fervor? And if that isn't where you're at, ask the Lord to ignite that passion in you. Good leaders not only inquire, good leaders are passionate for the Kingdom of God. Friend, if you are more excited about the Yankees winning the pennant than your neighbor coming to the Savior, we might need a realignment of our priorities. If our time at the shore is of higher order of delight than our time together worshiping the Lord who made the shore, then we might need to meditate on Hebrews 12.28. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful, for we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Not just for leftovers and Sundays and emergencies. May our hearts worship and not just our lips sing. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love. For Jesus who died and is now gone above. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Hallelujah, Amen. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Revive us again. Now, I want you to notice that we've talked a lot already about praying. How if, if we're sluggish in our passion, we ought to pray that God would reignite that pilot light to get the furnace of our fervor going for God again. We've talked a lot about praying already because that is point three. And you're going to see it all the way through the book of Nehemiah. Good leaders are prayer warriors. Good leaders are not necessarily charismatic. They don't necessarily stand head and shoulder above their neighbors. They're not necessarily tall, dark, and handsome. They aren't necessarily blessed with a great baritone radio voice. Good leaders are prayer warriors. Good leaders are prayer warriors. If you read the book of Nehemiah carefully, if you read the book of Nehemiah in one sitting from chapter 1 to the end, you will quickly see that Nehemiah is number one, a man of prayer. There are ten prayers offered up in the book of Nehemiah, ranging from this little quick arrow prayer of chapter 2 that's like, there it is. Just God, help us out. Uh, And there's a bunch of those arrow prayers. Remember me as I serve you. Remember that guy because he's causing problems. These little arrow prayers. But then, did you know that the longest prayer in all the Bible is in Nehemiah chapter 9. This same man who can fire little staccato emergency SOS prayers also offers the longest prayer in all the Bible. In our text today, repeatedly, we're going to see that Nehemiah is on his knees with the people's needs. Nehemiah's first reaction to tragic news is to go to God in fervent, focused, persistent prayer. And here it is in verse 4. 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah goes to God with this tragedy. He continues fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Friends, Nehemiah has a PhD in being intercessory. He can teach us much if we will listen. In verse 5, he starts with who God is. And then he moves from who God is to utter adoration and protracted praise in his praying. Look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Friends, what kind of a God do we pray to? We pray to the great and awesome God. The Lord of heaven. That's who you pray to. A God who keeps His covenant and has steadfast love for those who love Him. Do we come to God in prayer with praise on our lips or just demands on our hearts? Do we come to God at all in 2018? Or do we let the acid of worry eat away at our joy and our peace and our hope in Christ? When we come to God, do we come to God as the old King James used to say in Hebrews 4.16, do we come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in our time of need? We come with a confidence. The confidence is Jesus. If you're a child of the King, you have access to the King. Do you go to the King? with your needs? Do we come persistently like Jesus commands us in Luke 18 in the parable of the persistent widow that we should always eventually I'm going to teach you to talk back that we should always it begins with a P we should always pray and not give up. Jesus has to give us a parable of a woman that comes again and again and again to an unjust judge to show us how much more we should go to a just judge. How we should go again and again and again until the unjust judge is literally worn out. In the Greek, it's a black mark on his eye. His reputation is being soiled because he won't listen to this woman. That Her cry is not favoritism. It's, Lord, give me justice against my adversary. Friends, do you understand? Jesus had to tell us that we should always pray and not give up. And at the end of his story, the question isn't, does God answer prayer? Read his statement in Luke 18. It's when the Son of Man comes... Will he still find faith on all the earth? Jesus' question is, will they still be praying to the God of heaven? Not, does the God of heaven answer prayer? Excursus, back to our main story. Do we come persistently? Like Jesus tells us in the parable of Luke 18. Do we come unswervingly focused on God's provision? Like Jesus urges us in the parable of the importune neighbor who comes knocking at midnight and won't stop knocking until somebody answers and provides relief. Jesus encourages us to take things to God that only God can fix, and Jesus invites us to come and to knock until we get an answer. And it's okay for the answer to be no, but it's not okay to stop knocking because we're bored, tired, or don't care anymore. I fear that there are so few good leaders today because we are continually looking to the skill of men. 
We are looking to the techniques of persuasion. We are looking to the psychology of religion instead of looking to the great God of heaven. I fear the modern church does far too much for God and not enough in yielded submission to God's leading. Too often we ask God to bless our plans instead of inquiring of the Lord for His plan. We, we thunder ahead with our timing instead of waiting on God and His timing. We often want something grandiose, don't we? But God is often content to work through a still, small voice that turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. If we would but let the Gospel be the power of God unto salvation instead of the cleverness of the preacher, there's no promise that any man can bring anyone to Christ. Amen? Jesus said, I will build My church. Are we looking to Jesus to open hearts and build His church? Nehemiah starts with worshipful adoration. And then he moves to corporate and, and, and uh, a personal confession in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded. Your servant, Moses. Is there confession and contrition in our petitions or just a laundry list of what we want God to do? Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and in my iniquity I did not hide it. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John reminds us if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. See, Nehemiah starts with adoration and he moves to confession and then he bases his entire petition on the unchanging character of God as revealed in the unchanging Word of God. Look at verse 8. Nehemiah says this, Remember the Word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you amongst, or if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts in the outmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and I will bring them to the place I've chosen and to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah knows that God has made promises to His people. Promises to scatter the unfaithful and gather the repentant. And so Nehemiah prays in agreement with the promises of God's Word. Nehemiah asks the great Redeemer to greatly redeem again in his generation. Lastly, Nehemiah urgently, fervently, and reverently pleased for God to be pleased and heed His need. Look at verse 11 in his prayer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I hope you don't miss that last line. 
That last statement is so telling. If you live in the world that the cupbearer Nehemiah lives in, to refer to Artaxerxes, the most powerful man on earth, your boss that you have to constantly appease as this man, when Nehemiah talks to God, the most powerful man on earth is just this man. Friends, did you know dictators like their titles? I don't know if you watched the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but uh, one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Jack Sparrow is manacled before King George. Did you see that one? It's somewhere in Stranger Tides or something like that. And, and the king's courtier snidely turns to, to Jack Sparrow when Sparrow's like, who are you again? <laughs> and and, and, and the, the king's courtier in full royal snideness says, you are in the presence of George Augustus, Duke of Brunswick-Lundberg, an arch-treasurer and prince-elector of the Holy Roman Emperor, and king of Great Britain and Ireland and of you. There was a guy that was a dictator in Africa. His name was Idi Amin. And uh, he went by this title, and he would have people address him as this. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Dr. Idi Amin, Lord of all the beasts of the field and the earth and the fishes of the sea and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and Uganda in particular. Dictators like their titles, don't they? But Nehemiah understood that before God, the most powerful man on earth, Artaxerxes, the ruler of this vast empire spanning two continents, was just a man before God. It is the Lord of history who calls the shots. It is God who moves the heart of kings like water. Friends, know this. Good leaders are prayer warriors. Good leaders are prayer warriors. They entrust all of the work to God. They pray believing that if God does not show up, there is no point for us to either. That if God is not in this work, then we are utterly, futilely working. Prayer warriors are dependent on God. They're not ultimately dependent on organization, strategy, or persuasion. All of those things are going to come in as a mark of a good leader, but you can have the most organized, strategized, persuasive, charismatic leader, and if God isn't in it, you will do nothing that builds the kingdom of God. You will just build the empire of man. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do... Who's right, Jesus or our charismatic leaders? Shifting to chapter 2 now, the last eight verses, we come to point four. Good leaders are patient. Good leaders are patient to wait for God's timing in a situation. For God to work in a situation. For God to move in a situation. Good leaders are patient. We've talked about this. Are Americans patient? No. Minute rice takes too long, so we have microwavable minute rice. That's our culture. We gave the world that. We sold the world hamburgers that you can have it your way right away. But good leaders are patient and they wait for God's timing. Chapter 2, verse 1, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up wine and I gave it to the king. Now the Bible says that four months have expired and transpired from chapter 1's auspicious inquiry and learning about uh, his brother's misery, uh, the, the, the people in ruin and wreck over in Jerusalem. And for four months, Nehemiah has fasted and he's prayed and he's cried out and he's, he's wept out uh, night and day, the Scriptures say, for God to move the heart of the king for four months. I have a question for you. Can you wait patiently and pray fervently 
for many months for God to work in a situation. I, I fear that the modern definition of persistence is, is at best weeks or days or minutes. And then we kind of lose interest. Our Lord commands us to always pray and not give up. And so Paul urges the church to pray without ceasing. Thank you, you're responding. Gold star. Are we patient enough to wait on God and His timing? Artaxerxes is about to have his heart moved by the living God, and it's all been prompted by the prayer of a righteous man who prayed for months in the dark with tears. Nehemiah never knows that, or Artaxerxes never knows that, but the God of heaven knows that. And the God of heaven answered. Now the Bible says all of this happens in Artaxerxes' 20th year of his reign as king. That's a very important time marker in our story. Daniel's prophecy happened about 100 years earlier. And it's connected to the coming of the Messiah and the rebuilding of the holy city. And so, if you take the lunar calendar, which is the one the Jews used, and there's 360 days in the lunar calendar, and you take Daniel's prophecy of 69 sevens, and you do the math, that comes to 483 years. Meaning Daniel predicted, back in Daniel, I think it's 9, 25, 26, around there, Daniel predicted of Christ being cut off, 69 sevens, 483 years, that would make the time 33 A.D., do you know when Jesus was crucified and Christ was caught off? 33 A.D., 483 years, to the year that God predicted it in the Bible. Now, some scholars assert that since Artaxerxes' reign began in the seventh month, the month of Tishri in 464, that means that Nehemiah must have presented his request in March or early April of 444, 20 years into the reign. If that date was March 5th, that means that 69 sevens would come to 173,880 days. Reaching an actual literal fulfillment when Jesus enters Jerusalem, presenting himself as his royal entry as Israel's Messiah, and they all say Hosanna on March 30th, A.D. 33. Now, different scholars have different views on some of those computations. But if those computations are correct... Do you understand that Daniel's prophecies were fulfilled to the very day? Either way, good leaders are patient for God's timing, amen? Good leaders are patient for God's timing because, number five, good leaders seize opportunities when they present themselves. When God's timing is right and the doors are thrown open and God makes it an open door for our message, we pray in Colossians 4, 2-6, through 6, we pray that God would open a door for our message. And when that message comes, we pray that we might proclaim it clearly as we should, that we make the most of every opportunity of being careful in the way that we act towards outsiders, that our speech is full of grace and seasoned with salt so that we may know how to answer everyone. But within that is the petition, God, open the door. When, when, when the door is open, good leaders seize the opportunity. They're not seized by, well, what do we do now? And I wasn't ready for this. They're waiting for the opportunity to advance the kingdom of God when the conditions are right. Look at chapter 2, and you're going to see Nehemiah, after four months of praying, after four months of crying, after four months of fasting, when God gives the opportunity, he's got all the specifics. Okay, let's do this. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine, I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. He had no intention of doing this. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Why are you 
sad seeing that you are not sick. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Uh Uh-oh, I've committed a major social faux pas. This could be my life for showing up before the king this way. And I was very much... Hey, let me tell you, he's very much afraid. A good leader doesn't not fear things. He's more courageous to follow God in the fear. It's not the absence of fear that makes a leader. It's the presence of courage in the face of fear. So here's Nehemiah. He's very much afraid. Gulp. (laughs) And I said to the king, let the king live forever! Don't kill me. (laughs) Why should not my face be sad? When the city... The palace of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now you got to remember in the days of Ezra who stopped the work? This king. Now he's tactical. He doesn't say, you know, hey dummy, you stop. He just says, he, he speaks obliquely, he speaks gently, but he speaks directly. And he speaks in fear of losing his life. Nehemiah was afraid because a cupbearer was supposed to always be upbeat and never bleak in the presence of the king. But his heart was broken because the walls of the city of God were broken. And he could no longer conceal this pain. It started to leak out of him. The king saw Nehemiah's anguish. And since the king knew Nehemiah was otherwise healthy, the king rightly surmised that this was pain of the heart. And this is what the Bible calls a kairos moment. In the New Testament, there's two words for time. There's chronos time, clock time, and there's kairos time. Kairos time in the Old Testament looks a lot like this. For such a time as this. It's that moment of God when it's all coming together for the glory of God. This was a kairos moment. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer, not by chance, not by happenstance, but for such a time as this. Verse 4, And the king said to me, What are you requesting? Four months of praying had come to this moment. And what does Nehemiah do? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't think he went, let me go in my prayer closet and come back in 20 minutes. and end. I mean, right there he has like 30 seconds, 13 seconds, a 30th of a second, gulp, help me God. Those are legitimate prayers in the Bible, by the way. I love that verse. Nehemiah, a man of prayer, after investing four months in prayer, has a kairos moment and he sends up an arrow prayer because that's all the time he's got. Short and to the point. An arrow prayer is short and to the point. God, help me here. Help me now. Give me the words to share. And when he does, boy, the story dramatically changes to the glory of God. I want you to notice this. It is the very last lesson of leadership from the Nehemiah's notebook. Nehemiah is able to answer the king specifically without a moment's hesitation because good leaders plan ahead. Good leaders plan ahead. He wasn't baffled when the king says, all right, what do you want? He doesn't go, "Uh, let me go home and think about that. I don't really know. I think we need some building materials and a couple trees and I know a guy who knows a guy who can... No. Listen to what he says. Good leaders plan ahead. When the Kairos moment comes, when everything he's been praying for and planning for and working, he was ready. He planned ahead. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, well, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm open to this. Tell me more. So it pleased the king to send me when I I had given a time. It's going to take about this long. It's going to take a while. I need to be gone this long. It takes this long to get there. It takes this long to do it. It's going to take a while. And I said to the king, 
If it pleases the king, would you let letters be given to me to the other governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may let me pass, that they won't stop me to do this work? And let there be a letter to a man named Asaph. And he's just this little nobody. He's the keeper of the king's forest. He keeps track of the trees. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. He's asking to be governor of Judah. That's who lives in the citadel. And the king granted what was asked. Why? Because Nehemiah planned ahead and was strategic and he was a good leader. No, that's not what the Bible says. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knew that he needed letters to suppress the naughty governors who would seek to oppress the work of God. And they must come from the hand of the king or the work will not get done. Nehemiah knew that he needed a large amount of big, tall, sturdy timber. And he knew where to get it. And he knew who was in charge of it. You know why? Because good leaders plan ahead. And he asked for another royal letter. This time to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, for what was required. Nehemiah was so bold, he didn't just ask for the gates of the fortress and for the gates of the walls and the gates of the temple, but he asked for timber to build the governor's home because somebody was going to need to be there to galvanize, organize, and systematize the work of God that had been left undone. For the house I shall occupy. Now, Stepping back from the story into the political world that Artaxerxes lived in because the Bible is happening in real time and space. Just like your life is happening in real time and space. There were good political reasons for Artaxerxes to grant Nehemiah's request. There's a man named Inaros and he led a revolt in Lower Egypt in the late 460s. And he was aided and abetted by people in Athens. And so the Persians largely squashed this rebellion in 455, but there were still pockets of resistance in the Delta marshes thereafter. And Israel would make a pretty good buffer for more rebellion from the Egyptians. Then in the early 440s, a guy named Megaboxos, that's a name, hey, that sounds like a Lincoln Log toy set or something. Megaboxos, right? His name is M-E-G-A-B-Y-X-O-S. For all you millennials, that's a good name that nobody can pronounce and nobody else will be named. Megaboxos, you can name your kid that. He, he led a revolt in Syria. And it was put down just before this request is made. In the timing of God, when the time was right, after four months of prayer, this guy revolted and the king's thinking, how do I keep my farthest lands from falling apart? And so, Artaxerxes may have allowed Nehemiah to return simply to ensure that Judah remained loyal. Judah presented a natural physical buffer against the many rebellions in the western portion of Artaxerxes' empire. And so it was imperative it stayed loyal to the Persians. And who was more loyal than the man he trusted with his own life as cupbearer? So from a political standpoint, with someone as trusted as Nehemiah, as governor of Judea, the king could feel a measure of safety that there would not be an uprising that would run through his realm. Now that might be the human reasoning. But the Bible is clear that's not the real reasoning. The Bible says the king granted me what I asked for. Why? Because the good hand of God was upon me. Without God, we are going nowhere. Without God, the best leadership in the world is wasting its time. But friends, if God is for us, who can be against us? Summing up and circling back of what we've seen so far, 
From the opening of Nehemiah, we see that good leaders are inquirers. They want to know what's the status of the work of God. Good leaders are passionate about God's work. There's nothing they care more about. It's the highest order of their life. Number three, good leaders are prayer warriors. They're looking to God. They're praying to God. They spend more time on their knees than they do working through all the other needs. But good leaders don't just stop at intercession and investigation. Good leaders do go on to execution. They actually get something done. They actively seek the Lord's leading. They seek the Lord's timing. They plan ahead. And then they solve the problem when there's a kairos moment and it all comes together. And so that's what I'd like for us to ask the God of heaven to do today. I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and ask the Lord to raise up numerous biblical leaders here at Calvary. Only God can do this. I would like for you to pray with your neighbor that God might answer this prayer more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. That He would do more than we would have the faith to even pray today. Let's pray that God might so mightily move that we have an embarrassing surplus of godly leaders at Calvary and that we would be eager to share that surplus around the world in corners of the kingdom that are crying out, would you please send us a godly leader, a godly elder? Would you help our church with a godly pastor? Would you send us a missionary? Would somebody come with the Gospel? May, may we pray that we would be a church that God would be pleased to send out. For the glory of God and the good of His name, I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and pray to the Savior for God to raise up a multitude of biblical leaders right here at Calvary. And in a few moments, I will close in prayer. Turn to your neighbor and pray. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we come to You today believing that the fields are ripe unto harvest and that we ought to pray that You send out workers into those fields. 
We ask, Lord, that You don't raise them up from some other place, but that You would see fit to raise them up from this place. That we would be a disciple-making church. That You would allow us to see people who are in darkness come to light, who are in death come to life. That You would bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That You would bring people who are perhaps in not in a Bible-believing church at all, not in church at all, or in a church where the pilot light has kind of gone out and they're hanging by a slender flicker. Lord, would You use this to be a place where much great gasoline for the Gospel is poured on their soul, that we would never lose our spiritual fervor, that we would never be lacking in zeal. We understand that zeal without knowledge is dangerous. So we ask that You temper our zeal with the whole counsel of God. That we would look from Lamentations and Leviticus to James and Revelation. That we would make movements in the Word of God. You tell us that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we're calling people to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus personally. And then teaching them to obey all that you have commanded. Not some of what you've commanded. Not the sugar-coated stuff. Not the easy stuff. But all the stuff. And not just to know it so they can pass a theology test, but so that they would walk in it. And so, Father, we pray that you would make us a disciple-making church. For We pray that for as long as this church is here, should Jesus tarry, that you might be gracious and always put a man of God in the pulpit who exposits the Word of God with power and compassion and precision and passion. I pray, Lord, that you would do that in Jason's life, that you would raise him up to be a, a fervent and effective preacher of the Word of God. I pray that in Charlie Kerr's life, that he goes from rescue mission to rescue mission, that you would open doors, that through his testimony and your scripture and your divine plan that you would call people from bondage to freedom and from death to life and that you would raise up other brothers that even from amongst our own elders even from the ranks of our young people that you would call people out that there would be second careers for Jesus who who put their life on the line for the work of God I pray Lord Jesus that you would raise up many pastors many missionaries many evangelists many preachers I pray Lord that you would fill up our community committees with godly people that look to your word and your leading and your spirit that even as we adopt best practices that we lean not on them ultimately but on you eternally you've given us the wisdom of proverbs so there's nothing wrong with adopting best practices but let us not look to our own ingenuity let us look to your spirit and your word i pray lord jesus that you would place a hedge of protection around this church as we are going to see in the book of nehemiah when the people of god engage in the work of god that has long been left in the dust, all hell breaks loose against them. And, a, and a, a trio of powerful enemies come against them. There's Sanballat, there's Geshem the Arab, there's Tobiah the Ammonite, and they are powerful and they are encircling. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do as you did in Nehemiah's day, that there wouldn't be a moment where we stop work on the wall that you're giving us, that if need be, with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, we take up the positions. God, I'm mindful that you use Nehemiah to accomplish in 52 days something that the people of God, 50,000 people of God, God could not accomplish in 143 years. You can do anything with nothing. You see fit to use earthen vessels so that we would not rob you from your glory. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in Calvary, 
that your name would be lifted high through this church and the gospel would be extended. We pray that you would send the gospel into Roseland and Parsippany and Whippany and the Caldwells and Essex Fells. We pray that it would go down to Louisiana, that it would go on to whether that's going to be Baltimore or whether that's going to be Texas, Lord. We're waiting to hear back from the mission agency and where we should send the October team. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would raise up our sons and daughters. We pray that you would give them godly spouses. We pray that they would be able to find jobs and houses in this vicinity that that another generation can shine for Jesus around the Word of God in a world that needs to meet the grace of Jesus. I pray these things in the wonderful, powerful, precious name of the King who is above all kings, Jesus Christ. Amen.